It's time for the spring sales event at the DGDG Mazda stores. Capital Mazda, Stevens Creek Mazda, Concord Mazda, and Team Mazda. Hey, it's Shondell Grand. And right now we've got a huge selection of brand new Mazdas with exciting spring incentives across our entire lineup. Plus, you can buy your new Mazda completely online with our exclusive no-brainer checkout. Don't miss the spring sales event at the DGDG Mazda stores in San Jose, Concord, and Vallejo. Alec trying to steer around, picked off, centered, they score! Back over to Manny, splits the defense, his shot, he scores! Back in his own end there was Shillington, on collision, VL, centering feed, they score! This is CUDA Confidential, the official podcast of the San Jose Sharks AHL affiliate, the San Jose Barracuda. Here are your hosts, Nick Nolenberger and Joey Goldstein. Hello, welcome to another edition of Cuda Confidential, the official podcast of the San Jose Barracuda, AHL affiliate of the NHL San Jose Sharks. Nick Nolenberger here alongside marketing manager Joy Goldstein. Goldie, like we did last week, we've got another special guest. What's going on? Uh, you know, not much. Just uh, living the dream, as they like to say, right? This is, yeah. uh, it's, a, it's a long week. We're supposed to have family coming to town this week. Obviously, that didn't happen. Um, so... It's a little, uh, a little different, but, you know, just making the most of the situation and doing what we can. Yeah, I had a Mexico trip planned for, <laughs> for May 5th. I was going to Cabo, and I had to, I had to put the gabosh on that, too, so I feel you on plans getting uh, squashed. But um, we have a special guest. Doesn't really need much of an introduction, but we've got him live from his cabin out in Montana. Roy Sommer, former head coach of the San Jose Barracuda, now associate coach with the Sharks. What's going on, Coach? How are you? Not too much, man. I'm doing pretty good. You're Hanging surviving. Here in Montana. And you know what? I guess if there's a place for, uh, you know, to hang your hat, this would be the spot. You know, we have a couple million acres behind us with nothing there, you know. So get out, been getting out every day. I did some ice fishing and some snowshoeing and, you know, take the horses out every day and, go for long walks and you don't really run into anybody and we've been in town I think three times in the month we've been up here you know we kind of left before everything you know the shelter in place all that stuff started you know and the NHL closed down and they said guys were leaving and I saw Burns he was on his ranch and I said man if he's left I called Joe and Joe said yeah you know no sense hanging around here if you can you got a place to go well, your situation in Montana was almost like quarantining before quarantine became really a thing. You guys are so isolated. Describe to us your housing situation, where your cabin is at. I know you were right next to a lake. Just who's at the house? Who's living with you guys? What's going on um, in terms of uh, how the lifestyle is right now? Well, you know what? It's it's kind of like what we do all the all the time when I'm up here in the summer. You know, I had a place in Montana 42 years. It's not like I ran away here. And uh, we had a place way back in the woods. And then uh, 15 years ago, we bought a place on a lake up here. And we built a little kind of a, a partridge thing, we called it. And, you know, until I could get some more money together, then we built the front of the house on. And I'm sitting right on a lake. I'm actually 10 feet from a lake right now. And you know, it's frozen over. It's still uh, kind of winter here, but I can see it's starting to break up in maybe two, three more days and the ice will be off. But uh, 
you know, the house, my son's here, Caston, who coached his coaches in uh, Seattle with the Thunderbirds. And uh, uh, my son's here and, uh, you know, just kind of hanging out and doing our thing. And that's about it. Is, uh, is, is Mo there with you guys? I know a lot of people are going to ask about Mo. Is Mo up there with you? Oh, yeah, Mo actually just left to go on a walk. Tried to get him out of the house here, and he's pining for hockey already. Like he keeps saying, he goes for a walk, and he goes, tell the guys, went for a walk. I had him on the horses yesterday, and actually I'm going to get him out on the horses again today and uh, kind of go for a little bit of a ride, get him out of the house. But, uh, no, he, he's jonesing for hockey, misses his buddies back there, and uh, – you know, it's a tough time for everybody. Yeah, it certainly is. Coach, you mentioned you've been going to Montana for 42 years now in your off-seasons. You're originally from Oakland. Give us a backstory on how that became kind of your off-season hub. How did how, you end up all the way way up in Montana? Well, I was playing in the – I actually went to a, a camp and I was picked up by the St. Louis Blues and – they sent me to Salt Lake City, and uh, that was the International League back then. And, you know, they said they wanted me playing more or whatever, so they sent me to the Pacific Hockey League, which was a league out there that I think there was Spokane, L.A., San Francisco, San Diego, Tucson, Phoenix, you know, a bunch of teams out west. And the WHA just folded, so we had there was a lot of good players playing in that league. And... So I ended up in Spokane and kind of was hanging around with this guy and he was kind of an outdoorsman and we kind of hit it off. He was in the last part of his hockey playing days and uh, and he had a buddy that moved in with him and he said, hey, you, uh, you know anyone looking for uh, land in Montana? And he goes, I, you know, this kid that's playing with us, he might be interested. And I drove out and it was kind of a homestead thing and I ended up buying 20 acres in the middle of nowhere on a creek. And, and uh, I did that when I was 20 years old or 20, 21 years old. And then I used to live in a teepee there during the summer on my off season when I was playing. Then I would train in the woods. I had like a little uh, course I ran through. I'd put like rocks in a backpack and I'd run up a hill and had things where I did push-ups and pull-ups between trees and all that stuff. So I did that for a few years and, and then uh, ended up building a cabin there. And, but you know, there's no electricity or running water. And so I kind of put a well in and it's uh, built like a little thing for, with a flash heater and some pumps to get water and put a sep little septic system in. And, and it was functional, but, you know, the wife wanted electricity, so we started looking for a place, and we kind of came upon this place in Montana on this lake, and it's like seven miles long, two miles wide, kind of looks like Lake Tahoe, turquoise blue, over a million kokanee salmon and cut bows in it, and uh, so I can go out and fish every day and catch 10, 20 fish, and I think we were out ice fishing the other day. We were there two hours. We caught 56 fish, something like that. Wow. So what, what, do you, what are you using uh, in terms of bait to catch some of those fish? You, you said it's ice fishing at this point because the, the lake is still frozen over. What are you using for bait? 
maggots. Maggots. Do you, <laughs> maggots. Do you find those on your property? No, they're in, in, you know, like some of the little places as you're coming up to this space, we're like 15, 15, uh, 23 miles from town. We have an eight mile dirt road to get here. And uh, that's what kind of keeps other people off the lake because they don't want to wreck their boat on the dirt road. So that's kind of a, a plus. But, uh, you know, you can buy maggots at the store and use a little lure called a Swedish pimple. And you got a fishing rod about two and a half feet long. And actually, it's the first time I really ice fished. I did a long time ago, but uh, the lady that lives next to me, she's like the queen of the lake. And she's the ice fishing expert up here. And I just hung out with her and you put in a, a depth finder and you could see where the fish are and how close to the surface are. You catch them anywhere it's from 25 feet down to 50 feet down. And, you know, the lake in some spots is 270 feet deep. So, but we have the little spot where we know they're at and just put a hole in the ice and sit on a bucket and catch fish. Right, you kind of way I went, I used to go ice fishing up in Lake Winnipesaukee. You just kind of wait for the flag to pop up, right? Isn't that basically how it works? No, like, you don't have a flag. You just kind of you sit there and wait until something jumps on the line. And you just give it a little jerk and reel them in. They're you not really like big. A, They're, the fish here are like 9 to 12, 14 inches. Not have, real big. But you have one of those those ice fishing huts. Or is it literally you're just sitting out on the ice on a bucket? No, man, I don't, I don't do the huts, man. I sit out in the wilderness. <laughs> you, you, you are like everything you've described so far is like ideal mountain man, and for the cowboy to also have that mountain man uh, mentality is is pretty cool. You had mentioned the horses and doing a lot of horseback riding. How many horses do you have, and what are their names? Well, the, I have two horses. They're Tennessee Walkers. They're uh, big long legged things, you know, they get, they get across the country pretty quick. You can see a lot of, a lot of country on the top of one of those things. And uh, so we have Rocky is the, the mayor or the, the cult of uh, the mother who I have, her name's Philly and Rocky. And she's 20 years old and he's seven years old and they're right behind me. It's not, I don't live on a ranch or anything. I got a house on the lake and I have an acre behind me and I keep them back there and uh, they're tearing up the back of the, the house right now. <laughs> so my next question for you, Roy is, you know, in, in Montana, it's, they've got more grizzlies in Montana than any other state in the lower 48. You've lived there for a long time. What type of uh, grizzly bear stories do you got for us? I don't have grizzly. Well, actually the guys that were building my house, I took them to our place in Trout Creek. That's where we have our cabin. And uh, we were, uh, I think we drank like 90 beers between the three of us in uh, the one night. I said, so it was a one night show. And then, and then the guy that, uh, then I had this old 22 pistol. And, I, and whoever missed the cans had to do all the cleaning up. But uh, anyways, the next morning, you know, I woke up and this was uh, six years ago and I was sleeping out on the porch and the tree was waving and I looked, it was about 30 yards away and there was a big black bear in there eating these sarvis berries. And, and I go, I called the guys inside. So we watched that for a little bit. Then the guy had a scope and we put it on the meadow and there's a, 
a mountain right behind us. So he started scoping the mountain. He saw three more bears and he saw more bears. Then we got right up to the top and we watched a grizzly up there for about an hour and a half flipping over these big boulders and eating bugs and termites underneath it. And, and that mountain, that's one I always used to, I'd go from the bottom to the top and see how long it would take me to get to the top. And I think my record was like an hour or something like that. And, but I always saw these uh, bear caves and stuff. And now, now I'm not going to be so inquisitive and look inside them like I did before. But, uh, but that's kind of the only grizzly bear story. But, you know, I've ran into bears and stuff, black bears, but for the most part they see and they take off. What's so obviously there's tons of wildlife in the area where you're at. What's one of the craziest things? I mean, it could be a bear story, but what's one of the craziest things you've seen up there in, you know, the 42 years you guys have lived out in Montana? Well, I was uh, about six, seven years ago. Again, I was in uh, Trout Creek and I was telling my neighbor up there, I go, cause he had a mountain lion. It always come down and he'd throw rocks at it and, you know, get it out of his yard and it'd be after the, the chickens and stuff. And, and I go, man, I've never seen like a, a mountain lion. The next day I went uh, fishing to my favorite spot up there. Actually, that's the spot I brought that guy from the New York Times. <laughs> Came up. Great. Good article him. if people haven't read that one. Yeah, I brought him up to my, like, my favorite fishing hole. I know no one will ever find it because he didn't know where the hell we were at. But so when I went up there and I got off my four-wheeler and – I started walking in and I was like maybe 12, 15 miles from the cabin up our valley. And there's nothing up there. It goes in the wilderness area. You have to actually get off your four wheeler and cause you can, you're not allowed uh, motorized vehicles past a certain point. So I started walking and, and over to the left, I see this tail going. It was about 20 yards away. It was a big mountain line on top of a log and it was like, claw on the log and its tail was going back and forth and all they had was a fishing pole and that was it so I was looking around for a rock or something and it didn't see me I watched it for a while and it just kind of took off and I kept walking up the trail and it goes up a valley and it gets starts getting real steep and I see big piles of crap all over the place and that was wolf you know a bunch of wolves have been through there and I was going like man what else then I saw bear droppings all over the place. And so I went up to the thing. I did my fishing for three, four hours and in this one pond. And I said, I'm going to fish the creek back and then I'll, I'll catch the trail up. I'll, I'll climb up to the trail. And so I was up there about six, seven hours fishing and I have a, you know, creel full of fish and I'm starting to walk back to the, the ATV and I'm on that trail and I'm real tired and beat up because it's all mossy and you're falling down in this creek and everything. And uh, I come around a corner and 10 feet away, a bear's coming around the other side and we just kind of stared at each other. And usually they take off when you yell at them or whatever. And he just kind of started looking at me and he started twisting his head sideways and, and I started going towards it because it, and I figured maybe it'll back up or something. It didn't. It just kind of held its ground a little bit. Then I just got real big and roared and it took off. But I was so tired or whatever. And I was going like, man, I, I can't believe this is act. So I saw a mountain lion and a bear on the same trail. And I hadn't seen one up there in years. 
you know, that's ballsy. I'd say you're walking through the trail and you you see the mountain lion. Well, I'm just going to keep going that way. And you see all the the wolf droppings. I'm just going to keep walking that way. Like that's, I would have turned around me personally. Well, you know what? People, you know, you could be dumb about it and everything, but I've been up here a long time and, you know, everyone carries guns and bear spray and that maybe I probably should, but I never really do. And actually the contractors that built this house, that was my gift when they left was they got me a thing of bear spray. They go, man, you got to kid start carrying bear spray with you. When you go. But uh, I still don't know where it is. All right. As we continue kind of on this topic of Montana, I have a few trivia questions for you, Roy, that, uh, I've got for you. So we're going to test your Montana knowledge. I only have a few, so don't worry about it. But um, are you up for that? Let's do it. All right, let's do it. All right, what is Montana's nickname? Is it A, the Magic State? Is it B, the Treasure State? Or is it C, the Wild State? I thought it was Big Sky Country. Montana's nickname is the Treasure State. It is B. Okay. So here's question number two. What is Montana's official state flower? Is it A, the bitter root? Is it B, the Montana poppy? Or is it C, tulips? Uh, And I can repeat if you want. I'd say B. B, the Montana poppy? Nope, Mm. it is the bitter root. So I got you a little bit because I know Actually, I live in the, that's where my cabin is, the Bitterroot Mountain. Bitterroot. Okay, yeah, that's the official state flower of Montana. I got a, two Where'd more. You get more. these questions. Two more. So. I, I came prepared. Okay, two more. <laughs> uh, what is Montana's state bird? Is it A, the American bald eagle? Is it B, the red winged blackbird? Or is it C, the western meadowlark? It's got to be A. There's nope, it's C, the Western Meadowlark. I really? know, right? That's what I thought. I thought that would be a good uh, – I, I had to make up the false answers. I said that. Roy's not really, Roy's not really in Montana. Okay, he's, I think you can this one. Okay, our fourth and final question for it. Last one. The name Montana comes from what Spanish word? Or it's, it's from that. So is it A, mountain? Is it B, glacier? Or is it C, tundra? So again, the name Montana, what does that come from? Mountain, glacier, or tundra? Ooh, I would say uh, glacier. Mountain. Montana, mountain? I don't know. Okay. No, we, okay. Have glacier. we have glacier national parks. I know. Well, you, you can give me some credit because I made up the false answers, so I, I guess I made it too difficult. But, <laughs> all right, those are my four questions for you testing your knowledge of, of Montana. We'll, we'll, get you, we'll get you back on at some point. We'll, we'll get a little bit more, uh, I guess, uh, layups, um, if you will. All right, we're, uh, well, I think we can go back to a few questions on Montana as we continue, but – um, Joe, let's uh, shift gears to maybe a little bit of hockey-related stuff, and uh, I'll let yeah. you kind of take the lead here. Yeah, I, I don't want to spend too much time on it because, you know, I think people like learning about the, the things away from the rink. But I, I want to talk a little bit with you just about the, the transition and, and moving from the you know, head coach of the Barracuda to being associate coach with the Sharks because I don't think we ever really went over anything like that with, with our, for our fan base. So what was that transition like? for you and, and making that jump? Well, it was, uh, it was kind of a surprise. Um, you know, I, I know that, you know, when it came up and, you know, they made the decision to, you know, let the coaching staff go up there and, 
you know, I talked to Doug about it and he asked if I'd be willing to go up and I said, yeah, I'll give it a shot. And, but it was, uh, you know, coaches, um, I think the NHL is a little different animal than American league. It's, uh, I think there's a lot more pressure to win and, you know, the, you, you go up there and it's, uh, you know, there are real bullets flying up there. And, it, you know, I started out coaching, you know, two seasons as an assistant coach when I first started with uh, the organization and then with 23 years or something in the, the American League. So, you know, it was an adjustment. I mean, I wasn't the head guy anymore. So, you know, my role was, uh, you know, kind of helping out with the power play. And, and then, then again, I never really ran the defense before. So that was a new challenge. But and I think I struggled, I think, with it a little bit at the start, but I thought the last 15, 20 games, I thought I'd start getting the hang of it. You know, you look at the game from a different perspective. When you're a head coach, you kind of look at everything and what's going on. And when you're the defensive coach, you really kind of have to concentrate on where the guys are. Are they up in the play? When the puck goes back to the, the point, are guys boxing out down low? Are they you know, are they getting rolled out of the corner? You really, really pay attention to the defensive part of the game and you don't worry about the, the forwards so much, you know, what they're doing, just pretty well what your guys are doing. And when they do make a mistake or something, they come back to the bench and they want to know what it is. So, you know, those guys up there, you're not going to fool them. So you really got to, you know, keep your head in the game uh, all the time. But it was, uh, it was a good challenge. I enjoyed it. I'm sure a lot of the players were familiar with you, especially the younger guys, because you coached, uh, you know, most of them. But for the older guys like uh, Brent Burns and even Joe Thornton, who have as big a personalities in the game as you'll find, what was it like kind of interacting with those guys? And what was your approach when you, you know, kind of took over your new role um, dealing with those type of players? Well, you know, I think it was a little bit different, too, because, again, you know, as a head coach, yeah, you know, you're there, you know, they're kind of their friend and, and everything else, like, but you, you kind of keep your distance a little bit, you know, like I had Chaser and Bones and they kind of, you know, did their thing, you know, there's kind of a good cop, bad cop kind of thing. And so I was in a different position, but I'd done it before where, you know, when, uh, you know, we do a game and I take out all, you know, shifts or like Bernsey shifts and, you know, maybe 10 to 12 shifts and go over them with him and what he thought and what I thought he could do better. It's, you know, coaching's kind of coaching, but it's just kind of at a different level. I don't know if that answered your question or not, but, you know, like Jumbo and that, I've known him forever. And so it wasn't a real hard move because I know all those guys. You know, I've been around them, you know, since they came in, you know, Logan Couture and, you know, guys like that. Even Patty Marlowe, when he came back, he started there. And um, so the, the adjustment wasn't that hard. I thought that, uh, you know, just – you know, stepping back and not calling the shots and stuff, you know, what you're used to doing as a head guy was a little different, but again, it was, you know, kind of an easy transition, you know, got to work with Nabby and reach and he was a really good guy. Didn't really micromanage that much and kind of let us do our thing. So, you know, overall, I thought it worked out pretty good. On the flip side, you got uh, Mike Chase on Jimmy Bono kind of took the reins over for the Barracuda before uh, Johnny Mack joined the staff. What were your thoughts on those two guys? And how did you think that they were going to be able to handle the, the new challenge? No, you know, they did a good job. I mean, it was, you know, they were kind of a tough situation. You look at both of them, 
you know, both first year coaches or second year coaches, they hadn't coached before. And, you know, coming in the American League and taking over as the head guys, you know, it was, uh, you know, a lot to expect from those guys. And I thought they did a good job. I think it was a little bit of an adjustment for them. I don't think they saw it coming like no one else did. But, uh, you know, I thought they stepped in and, you know, they made the right calls. And uh, then, you know, losing Johnny Mack and then, you know, Miz got called up. They had some injuries to deal with and stuff before we had, I think, we had like seven, eight extra guys we were sitting out and near the end of the season, they, we were calling guys up from the East Coast League to fill the void. So, you know, they got a taste of everything, you know, on, on the recall, you know, part of it and, and uh, you know, playing short and having to adjust when you lose your two or three top players in one game and they get called up and you have to adjust your power play and your penalty kill. But, hey, it was good for them. You know, they, the only way to get better in this business is by, you know, going in the line of fire. When the news did break, walk us through that morning. Um, who called you? How was that information kind of relayed to you and presented to you? Well, you know, I, you, like I said, it happened fast. Um, and, uh, you know, I talked to Joe and, um, and he goes, <laughs> he's, you know, he said, Doug wants to talk to you. And Doug says, you know, I'm going to make a move and, you know, we're going to bring you up to uh, the Sharks and, then I just go, well, who's going to take over my spot? And then, you know, they had that all, you know, everything was kind of, you know, that planned out, you know, was something, you know, I'm sure they'd been in the works. I don't know, but, you know, it happened quick. And, you know, next thing I know, I'm walking across the, the way and in the Sharks room, we had one practice. And then the, I think the first game was against the Rangers. And uh, so it all happened pretty quick. And the next thing you know, I'm standing behind the bench and coaching the defenseman and, and, uh, you know, I have some Hall of, Hall of Famers right in front of me and, you know, Bernsey and Carlson and Dylan and those guys and Flasic And, you know, it was, uh, it, was, uh, it was an interesting time, let's put it that way. You, you mentioned it was against the Rangers that first game. When you go into your closet and you're pulling out the outfit you're going to wear for your return to the NHL, you elect to go with a bolo tie, which kind of blew up Twitter, especially around the Sharks organization, really around hockey in general. Um, what was the thought process rocking the bolo tie and your return back to the NHL? And if you don't mind going back a little bit uh, on where the whole bolo tie thing began, I know we talked about it when you joined me on the radio during our coup de country night, but uh, for people who are unfamiliar, give us a, a bit of a background story on how the bolo tie thing started. Uh, shoot. I've been wearing a bolo tie since like my Cleveland days, I think. And actually I got married. I had a, I had a bolo tie on and it was uh it was actually my grandfather's and his father had given it to him. That's what I heard. So it was like made in like the 1850s or something like that. And so it was kind of passed down to me and I always had it. And, you know, one time, you know, we, we, things weren't going very good. And I, I, I think it was in Cleveland. So I brought it out and everyone was going like, well, what the heck is that? I said, it's a bolo tie. It's going to be good luck. And we rattled off a couple wins and then I put it away and then I brought it out again. And then we were in uh, Worcester and, you know, I started wearing some different ones, but uh, you know, I would bring that tie out and shoot. I think it had a 90% win, win ratio. I didn't, 
I didn't kill it, but uh, it seemed like, you know, just kind of break the monotony. And, you know, uh, I guess hockey's kind of a, a sport, you know, like kind of like fly fishing and bait fishing. Bait fishermen just kind of do whatever, and fly fishermen are real particular about, you know, the way you fly fish and everything. And hockey's kind of like that, a shirt and tie behind the bench. And, you know, I think Tortorella wears a sweater back there or something sometimes. And, but it's just kind of a traditional thing. It's always been a tie, but no one's really worn a bolo that I know of. But so I just started wearing it, you know, kind of, you know, I had some other ones. Uh, my wife bought me one when we had 400 wins and I wore that one. And, and then uh, I had some other, they all have a meaning. They've, they've all came from a person, a buddy of mine that I grew up with. I think uh, one of the ones I wore, it was made out of an Elkhorn and uh, he sent it to me in the mail and, you know, I had to wear that one for him and, uh, you know, but it's it just kind of a fun thing and kind of breaks the monotony up. And I mean, Hey, you should see some how some, how some of those NHL guys dress. I mean, they come in in some crazy outfits. So what I had was pretty tame back there. Especially in our locker room with guys, you know, like Burnsy and, and Evander King, those guys like to wear the flashy suits. So yeah, I can, uh, I can see that. What, um, we, in the past couple of weeks, we've had a couple of signings of some, some college guys who were in development camp uh, this past year, and John Leonard and, and Brinson Passion. From a coaching standpoint, what are you looking forward to most with those guys joining the organization? Well, Pasternak, like, this guy was well, you know, well sought after. I bet you probably have every NHL team in the league that went after him. Um, you know, he broke every record at Arizona and – you know, I saw him in camp, like real steady guy. And, you know, he's got some offense to him, plays the game the right way, plays hard and heads up, first pass mentality guy. And, you know, it's just going to be, I think he's going to be a really good pro. You know, he finished his school. Like I said, he broke every record there, although the, the school is new to the NCAA. But, uh, you know, they got a winner when they found, you know, they we signed him and, you know, John Leonard, you know, another guy, Hobie Baker finalist and, you know, just had a great year. He's got a great release, plays hard, north-south kind of game. You know, I I could see this guy, you know, maybe even starting in, the, you know, the National Hockey League. You know, I think he's that good. Um, you know, but it's, it's always good to start down in the American League, but you know, I guess we'll see what happens when training camp comes, but two great signings for us and uh, guys that I think will make an immediate impact with the organization. Coach, did you ever envision that, you know, an NHL team would be signing a kid who played college hockey in the state of Arizona? You're from an untraditional market in Oakland, kind of carrying the torch for the game on the West coast as being one of those rare guys who played it and then got up to the NHL. So did you ever imagine that the game would, uh, would expand that far? Or is this just something that, uh, that seemed inevitable as you can, as you have continued along in your career? Yeah. You know what? The hockey's grown and, you know, leaps and bounds, especially in the West, you know, look at all the kids that are coming out of California now and making an impact in the junior and the college and even the NHL level now. And a lot of guys from the American league from California and, you know, state keeps pumping them out. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if Stanford eventually has a team and, you know, you're going to see, a, I think you're going to see a lot more, you know, why not USC, UCLA, 
you know, you know, they have a Pacific division there. Seattle jumps in somewhere, Washington state. I mean, I, you know, it's a game that, you know, people like to watch and, you know, all the colleges, they, you know, they pack the building for the most part. And, you know, that's been a, you know, just been a, you know, great franchise there, you know, Penn state came back in again and, you know, look what that, you know, it's done there. You can't get tickets to it. So, yeah, I, I think a, a West Coast uh, NCAA uh, division would be, uh, you know, something that's probably more so in the near future than the far future. But I, you could see, I could see Arizona, you know, getting in it. You know, it's, you know, one of those uh, things that, you know, college kids and people like to watch and it's got a good following and, you know, why not? Yeah, and it doesn't hurt with a guy like Austin Matthews coming from that area too and now being a superstar in the NHL. Uh, Coach, one last question for you um, before we let you go. Um, it's still pending on whether the NHL is going to return. No one really knows. It's day-to-day -day at this point. Um, but as you look forward in, in your current situation out in Montana, um, what are the plans moving forward? I know you guys, uh, of course, spend your whole offseason pretty much out there. So um, what does it look like for you in the next uh, month or so, obviously depending on what the NHL does? You know what, I, I think, you know, like from what I've been told and what I've been reading, I mean, you guys are probably know more than I do, but, you know, I think it's all going to come down to what the government says. You know, I, you know in their, the NHL, I, I can't see them going against them saying, you know, if they're going to open things up and they say no sporting events, I don't think there's going to be sporting events. But, you know, like I'm hearing baseball might go and in Arizona and they'll just play the games for TV in front of nobody. But. You know, I don't know, you know, can you play a Stanley Cup finals in, in front of nobody, you know, like the emotion and, you know, the energy and everything that, you know, the home team brings in the Stanley Cup, you know, playing in front of an empty, I don't know, man, it'd be kind of weird, but I guess it's possible. Um, you know, hopefully they, you know, they find a vaccine and for this and it gets settled, but, it, you know, it's a scary time right now. You know, I don't know if it's something you really want to mess with and get people together and, you know, all of a sudden you, you want to go through this again? I don't think so. You know, let's get it right the first time and then, you know, go from there. I think they'll be cautious with it. But, again, I know they want to play. I know the players want to play. And whether they're going to start playoffs right away or we're going to get to play our last nine games, I don't know. Yeah, it's a big question. I don't think anybody knows at this point, but it certainly uh, is interesting. And uh, I guess we'll just have to wait and see what goes down. But, Coach, hey, we appreciate it. Uh, great catching up. Uh, enjoy the time with your family. Tell Melissa and the kids, uh, all of us say hello. And, again, thanks uh, for jumping on. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And you can't put – you can't put the – I was 0 for 4 in Montana – I, you know what? I did not prep yet. We've been in contact. Those a hard question. on. I, really, I should know what if, the state if, bird is. I don't know what California state bird is. I know the California flower is the poppy, but that's a pretty easy one. So I, I didn't give you any layups. And my, I apologize. I thought you might get the the mountain question, yeah. but but you know, yeah, you know what? It's funny. So we have there the other day. Someone counted twenty five bald eagles on the lake. So what happens is. They'll sit out on the lake and they'll find a fish in the ice and their beaks are like curved. They don't have a, a spiked beak like a crow. So they wait for the crows to come and peck the fish out of the ice. And then as soon as the, 
crow's getting ready to take off of the fish. The eagle comes walking over and kicks him out of there and eats it. But matter of fact, I'm looking out right now, but you can usually go out there and you'll see uh, bald eagles sitting on the top of the ice. And, and I've seen them stay there for like four hours just looking at a fish in the ice, waiting for a crow to come along to dig it out for them. Pretty funny. That is funny, making the crows do their uh, do their dirty work, I guess. But yeah. Smart. Smart that bird. is smart. Well, Coach, we'll have to get out there sometime. I know we talked about this for basically uh, the entirety uh, of the time I've been with the organization, but we'll, we'll get a crew up there at some point. We'll get the behind-the-scenes look. But, um, again, we appreciate it. Uh, stay safe, and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you in the near future. You too. All Thanks. Right. Take care. See ya.